When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I am a host for the New Books in Japanese Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. Daniel White about his book, Administering Affect, Pop Culture Japan, and the Politics of Anxiety, which is out from Stanford University Press in 2022. In the book, White draws on extensive fieldwork in government ministries, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, for example, and government-adjacent organizations such as Japan Foundation to explore Japan's current politics of anxiety. In other words, the ways in which state administrators have transformed anxieties about Japan's geopolitical status into future-oriented programs of national branding and revitalization. These are based on a narrowly defined vision of pop culture as synecdoche and savior, which is what White calls pop culture Japan. Examining the so-called Cool Japan soft power strategy and policy-making decisions to nominate anime favorite Doraemon as a cultural ambassador, or icons of young women's culture as ambassadors of cute, White shows that the anxieties driving Japan's administrators are disseminated into the culture broadly. He also pays close attention to the gender politics of these campaigns, as many of the administrators are men, and the instrumentalization of women as agents of national branding and soft power politics. Okay, Dr. White, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Um, So we're going to be talking about uh, your book, Administering Affect, and it's a book about something that you call, uh, in in inverted commas, in quotes, pop culture Japan. Um, You're focusing on the creation and the management of this phenomenon, and as the uh, uh, title suggests, it's affective appeal. So to start off uh, as both an administrative and an affective phenomenon, what exactly is pop culture Japan in the way that you're using in the book? And I'd love it if you could frame your answer um, to address this provocative observation that you make, which is that pop culture Japan is, and I'm quoting here, formative of an arrangement of affect that feels simultaneously hopeful and anxious, and that through practices of administration advances the claim that Japan increasingly is its popular culture. Sure. Thanks for that question. And, and thanks for that, that correct emphasis on the is and that last bit of it. Um, I think it, it, might, it might help to explain pop culture Japan by contrasting it with, with popular culture. 
So popular culture, especially in Japan over the last three decades that this book concentrates on, um, includes a sort of broad, diverse, almost wild variety of commodities, practices, styles, uh, desires, um, expressed through popular forms of media, you know, the anime, manga, pop culture, film, fashion that Japan has, has become known for over the last several decades. Um, so it's diverse, it's varied, it's a, it's a critical um, practice. Pop culture Japan, however, is to me a very different figure. Um, so it's essentially a, a version of Japan as national culture that is imagined primarily by Japan's male uh, politicians as bureaucrats and a number of government advisors and some content creators and pop culture fans. So this version of Japan is, is much less an open and playful figure that, that popular culture is. Um, rather, it's this sort of fundamentally um, political figure um, which in the imaginary of those government figures that are managing the image of Japan's national culture portray Japan as a kind of popular culture and content commodity powerhouse um, that is admired for its, its creative culture. Um, critically, however, I want to say that in the eyes of administrators, pop culture Japan is also imagined as made up of, of national culture in which kind of the appeal abroad for Japan's popular culture translates directly into... Uh, a kind of affection or appeal um, for Japan as a nation state. And thus, it turns popular culture into a kind of political power. Um, so here, I think it's important to, to note this link between popular culture and political culture. So this link is, is quite critical for understanding this figure of pop culture Japan and why I think it's, it's a useful image through which to understand changes in Japan over the last few decades that I've become interested in. Um, and especially for me, the, the importance of the kind of emotional processes uh, in, this, in this social change for the last few years. So many listeners might be familiar with the term soft power. Uh, for those that are not, I'll just sort of briefly summarize it. Um, soft power was this term coined by the Harvard political scientist Joseph Nye in the early 1990s. And it was used to describe the, the kind of proposition that nation states might achieve political power, prestige and influence over other nation states not through traditional hard power strategies of, of kind of the military might or economic strength, um, but rather through its, its sort of cultural attractiveness. Um, and this attractiveness or appeal was grounded for nine in three basic areas, in, nation, in the nation's culture, in its values, and in its policies. So this idea became very popular in Japan, um, especially in the early 2000s, for uh, for some important reasons that might be helpful to go into a bit later. Um, but for now, I'll just say that that this rather attractive idea by a Harvard political scientist for Japanese bureaucrats seemed like a great way for Japan's state administrators to connect the perceived popularity of Japanese pop culture abroad to political ambitions at home to grow Japan's geopolitical power. So to return to your question, pop culture Japan in my kind of formal definition of it, is this collection of pop culture diplomacy projects and government-sponsored imagery, uh, soft power ideology, nation branding strategies, and um, above all, this kind of affective or emotional concern among state administrators over the international status of Japan as a nation um, that I sort of name in my book, Geopolitical Anxiety. Uh, which I think is largely responsible for helping fuel this, this very hopeful imagery um, among state bureaucrats that kind of reinvents Japan 
from its previous image as an economic powerhouse in the 1970s and 80s into a cultural powerhouse uh, since the 2000s. So uh, to really understand pop culture Japan, I think one has to pay attention to how feelings, emotions, affects among state administrators, among bureaucrats, actually get kind of translated or transcribed into national cultural policy. Um, and that's the real work that my book aims to do, and, and that's captured in its title, Administering Affect. Yeah, that's, um, so this is actually why I wanted to ask you this question first and then do our sort of traditional first question of how you came to this project, right? Because you've laid out the phenomenon itself and your interest in it from this affective side. And so what I wanted to ask right now that we understand sort of what the project is and how you're, how you're coming at it, like what is it that drove you toward thinking of this as a project about affect? Like how did you come to this project not as thinking about pop culture or popular culture or soft power in a sort of general sense? but this specific approach that you're taking. Right. Um, so I've, I've always been interested in kind of the emotional and affective dynamics of political culture, uh, how ideologies on the state level do or do not become sort of uh, transcribed into, into literal feelings among the publics that certain state ideologies and policies affect. I've always been interested in this dimension. And um, when I became interested in, in sort of the... Uh, um, all the energy and political excitement around popular culture in Japan, I realized there was this very interesting, um, let's call it a sort, of, a sort of gap, let's say, between the kind of excitement that was being built around these ideas of soft power and popular culture in Japan, and then the lack of kind of clear metrics or ideas about how to translate that excitement into actual sort of policy objectives when it comes to soft power. Soft power is a very abstract and, and kind of ambiguous term. And for that very reason, it proves very effective at attracting a lot of different kinds of uh, ideas and feelings and hopes and, and fears um, that kind of uh, collect around that term and then help transcribe or transform it into certain policy objectives. So as someone always interested in sort of the emotional and effective aspects of political culture, soft power seems like a perfect topic to really try to understand how affect at the bureaucratic level was influencing state policy and then in turn influencing the public's those state policies effect. Great. Um, and so this, yeah, you're, you're looking uh, very much at this sort of bureaucratic response um, to questions about Japan's place in the world, its future, uh, this sort of long-term malaise of anxiety. Um, and you define that actually, and I thought this was also a very interesting definition, the palpable but imperfectibly identifiable impetus to change an uncomfortable present and uh, props for the alliteration there. Um, but you prefer you, you refer to uh, pop culture Japan as this as the anxiety itself, right? As, as this, as you put it, an administratively generated anxiety. Um, so what is it that the uh, administrators, right, are doing to manage, to administer uh, the sort of phenomena of pop culture Japan vis-a-vis uh, -vis Japan's geopolitical status in the world? Um, and as you've already noted here and you, and you get to in the book, I mean, this is, you know, a, 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 an anxious but future-oriented strategy. Um, and you contrast that in your introduction with some of, for example, Marilyn Ivey's work from the 90s, um, which was you know, tourism promotion, which was not in that sense sort of future-oriented. Uh, and it seems to me this is an important part of the puzzle of sort of uh, orienting ourselves before we dive into the chapters. 
Yeah, thank you. There's a, there's a few wonderful points and, and questions in there. So um, let me try to take them in, in turn. Um, so for me, pop culture Japan, as this figure I'm working with, as an analytical figure I'm working with, has a very precise affective mechanism to it. And it's a dynamic mechanism. It's a process, as many emotional things are. So pop culture Japan is essentially this imaginary that is also a political tool by which these anxious concerns about Japan's geopolitical status in the world can be translated, transformed, transmogrified into a hopefulness for Japan's future and a kind of pride in what Japan can become in the future, as, as you've nicely noted. Um, so in this sense, pop culture Japan is a way of imagining the nation uh, and thus those people that identify with it as a successful and appealing, a creative kind of pop cultural nation or uh, what David Lahani, another scholar of, of Japan's politics of pop culture, um, has called an empire of hope, um, which I, I like quite a bit. So in this sense, pop culture Japan um, also very much entangles political concerns of the state with personal concerns of identity and pride. And this is something that I think is sometimes missed uh, about bureaucratic culture, that these are actual people with personal feelings uh, working for the state, and they bring those, those personal uh, entanglements to their job, um, which is something I, I touch on in later chapters, actually. Um, so to think about where this anxiety comes from um, before getting into a kind of what exactly these bureaucrats are, are doing on affective levels. So in the most general terms, for me, this anxiety uh, comes from this breakdown in a previous national imaginary in Japan that was tied to the state's uh, global economic success in the, in the 70s and 80s most prominently. So many are familiar with Japan's um, enormous sort of economic success story, most specifically in the 1980s and the, the kind of dramatic growth of its economy. Um, compared with its rather impoverished state in the aftermath of the, of the Pacific War or World War II. So this story of rapid economic growth, sometimes called the, the Japanese miracle, became a dominant national narrative for Japan that quite dramatically broke down uh, with the collapse of Japan's um, asset bubble and broader economy in the early 1990s. So pop culture Japan describes how a kind of new national imaginary tries to capture how this new national imaginary emerged in Japan, largely through specific government efforts, bureaucratic efforts, that serve to translate this anxiety over Japan's loss of economic growth and all the social and psychological forms of security that were tied to that into a hope for a new Japan. So pop culture Japan is really this mechanism for, I see it, as I see it, for translating this anxiety into a kind of hope. Um, and so I draw on, on a few examples to try to, um, to try to draw this out, mostly from popular and, and public media. Um, so it might, it might help just to draw on, on one of these examples. Um, so there's one I really like of an NHK. NHK is Japan's public broadcaster, essentially Japan's, uh, equivalent of the UK's BBC. Um, so in 2011, NHK announced this set of programming, which they called Overcoming the Japan Syndrome Campaign. Um, and they basically created this, this set of programming in order to specifically address, as they say in some of their announcements for it, this, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, this, quote, anxiety, or what they would say, fuan in Japanese, uh, fuan or fuante, which can also kind of be uh, translated as maybe insecurity. 
Um, but better for my purposes to call it uh, anxiety for a number of reasons. So they said this anxiety is, is sort of uh, clouding Japanese society and Japan is facing this unprecedented demographic change and global competition. And so this set of programming will address this issue head on and seek a remedy to kind of climb out of this situation. And, you know, for a public broadca uh, broadcaster, that is sort of uh, its remit is to capture the mood of the public as imagined as a sort of integrated full uh, kind of figure. I thought this was really telling and really points to how much anxiety is sort of a, sort of a common theme among many people's minds, although perhaps affixed to different objects um, and to different matters of concern in Japanese society. So as you, as you sort of nicely pointed to, this figure of pop culture Japan is indeed for me a kind of uh, future-oriented uh, figure. And this contrasts a bit with, um, with the anthropologist Marilyn Ivey's uh, work, who um, produced what to my mind was uh, quite a brilliant and rich critique of Japanese national culture um, in a book in the 1990s, Discourses of the Vanishing. And so she very much focused on um, a kind of national sentiment that was grounded in sentiments of nostalgia. So she discussed things like Japan's national railway campaigns, festival culture, uh, ethnographic writing, uh, and a number of other practices in which this sort of single cultural logic could be identified, could be found. Um, and essentially what this cultural logic was, was um, sort of this reproduction of a sense of loss. This idea that what was truly Japanese for Japanese people at that time uh, was that which was lost in Japan's transition from modernity with the major restoration in 1868. Um, and that which is memorialized in cultures of nostalgia for Japan's traditional culture. So the nostalgia for what has been lost from quote unquote traditional Japan um, is no doubt a dominant narrative in Japan still today. But the figure of pop culture Japan, as I saw it emerging among state bureaucrats primarily, makes a bit of a break with that nostalgia, an important historical break, I think, and turns that past-oriented sense of nostalgic, uh, nostalgia or nostalgic loss into a hope for what is to come in the future. Um, this, this new Japan very much grounded in its innovative and creative popular culture and its popular culture industries. Um, I think it, it might be also helpful to point out here that pop culture Japan is very much a political and a contested figure. It's not something that all state bureaucrats, politicians, and, and public are, are buying into. And that's why I call it a politics of anxiety. It's people contesting, discussing, debating over exactly what is the source of this anxiety that seems to be pervasive in J Japanese society and how can we do something about it? Um, so in this sense, pop culture Japan is fundamentally a political and contested figure. So it's embedding very particular views and sentiments over others. Um, so for example, while many of the kind of strong advocates for pop culture Japan, for promoting Japan as pop culture um, are rather disproportionately older and male. Most of the images that we see expressed through pop culture Japan um, and through sort of branding campaigns that we might go into later, uh, such as the ambassadors of cute, um, are more often quite young and female. So uh, this inscribes a, a kind of politics of gender into a narrative of national resurgence, I think. Um, and then pop culture Japan is thus 
um, this sort of uh, thing that represents a dominant figure of state administration as well as a contested figure of national uh, cultural politics. Um, and so there are a number of examples I use to try and, and show this contested nature of pop culture Japan. Um, the one that, that sort of sticks out to me most prominently is, is of this um, female cultural policy researcher whom I encountered after meeting uh, uh, many of these rather pretty explicitly committed male soft power advocates in bureaucracy in various government offices who were, who were promoting the possibilities of Japan's pop culture and its um, possibility to sort of uh, improve uh, Japan's national futures. Um, so when I was asking her about her own impression of these programs, um, again, the details of which we might go into later, she sort of kind of laughed and explained that for her, these programs were really just places for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and other government ministries and um, agencies to deposit certain portions of its budget it did not want to lose. And she basically kind of laughed at these programs and explained that she often had no idea what these bureaucrats were thinking. And so you often see these critiques toward this figure of pop culture Japan. And in that sense, I bring up that example because it's important to really keep in mind that this figure is indeed a, a contested one. Um, so in, in, in short, to kind of, kind of wrap, wrap up uh, an answer to this question, there is this really kind of push and pull dynamic in these programs. Um, to the degree that a, a central government like Japan pushes one narrow image of Japan, especially one dominated by male administrators and young female imagery, it's very likely to marginalize or alienate a number of people who do not see themselves in those images of the nation. So as I go through the book, I try to describe both the dominant sort of kind of male-oriented uh, administrative sentiments driving the figure of pop culture Japan and then the people, it, it kind of rubs the wrong way or for whom it feels uncomfortable. Yeah, thank you for uh, making those tensions clear, because I think that's a lot of, to, to me, that seemed to be a lot of what's sort of at stake um, within the internal politics uh, and this, the way that plays out in Japan. Also, uh, the NHK example, I, I, I laughed to myself because uh, earlier today I was uh, reading Aya Homei's book about uh, the invention and uh, development of population science in modern Japan. Also, uh, I guess I should also plug this because it's coming up on the podcast. Uh, you know, stay tuned. But um, and, and it's also it's a lot of those same uh, questions about anxiety, bureaucratic response, etc. Um, now here, of course, for you, it's not the actual sort of demography or population science that's at issue. It's the that future-oriented vision of sort of how, how we deal with that as a matter of soft power, which is the thing that you get to in chapter one, uh, appropriately titled Soft Power, uh, an affective history of the politically possible. And you've already gone over um, some of the main points of the chapter, but I wonder whether you want to expand a little bit here, because you, you talk about this in a very interesting way as the affective history of the politically possible, right? That's the subtitle of the chapter. So um, why is that affective history important to our understanding of soft power? And how does the anthropomorphization, both the personification and the embodiment of the state and of states, nation states, as the protagonists of soft power, you know, why is that important and how does it function? Because um, it seems to me that's the thing that we haven't really addressed that's really, uh, it's, it's most important um, from this chapter. Right, right, exactly. Um, so in many um, sort of histories, stories, um, Japanese ethnographies of Japan, 
there's very much a common narrative told about Japan's recent political history. Um, and it's kind of a, a common or useful shorthand to summarize key events in, in the public consciousness in Japan's uh, uh, recent history. And it's, it's quite useful, I, I think, to sort of set context for often ethnographic focus analyses. But for me, it sometimes misses some key aspects that explain how and why societies make certain cultural shifts. So the story as it's often told goes something like this. And I'm, I'm giving this story because I, in this chapter, I'm, I want to tell a rather different story. So the main story goes something like this. So Japan emerged from, from the Pacific War, World War II, rather impoverished, uh, as the emperor's status suddenly declined from this kind of di divine status to a demure status, as U.S. military personnel occupied Japanese territory, and as Japan's constitution was being rewritten in America's interest, economic despair was, was kind of coupled with a personal or a moral sense of of defeat, um, often imagined as pervasive to society at large. Then when through processes of reconstruction and liberalization, Japan's economy eventually began to boom. Uh, so did personal morale, um, more or less. So then you have this period of high economic growth or kodo seicho, as it's often called in Japanese in the 60s and 70s, which led to this economic boom or economic miracle, as we've uh, talked about a bit already in the 1980s. Um, you have this small group of enormous corporations, or zaibatsu, um, which have this sort of interconnected uh, interests and businesses in real estate and banking and construction, which accelerated Japan's growth and then brought along with it this, this system of lifetime employment, which is really key here. Uh, lifetime employment and social and psychological security that go along with that. Um, so this accelerated, accelerated economic growth uh, which is fueled by increasingly risky spending and arbitrage, particularly in real estate, basically kind of inflated prices and created this asset price bubble that officially collapsed in 1992. So the economic, the economic recession and the kind of deflated morale that followed was often named in Japanese media the lost decade. Um, and it was characterized by things like the, the loss of lifetime employment, the loss of, of male self-esteem on which that... Uh, on which it was it was based um, and led to this general sense of malaise. Um, now, despite further efforts to regenerate Japan's economy through further liberalization policies, Japan's economy has continued to stagnate now through through two, three, and as some Japanese um, commentators are are now describing, potentially even four lost decades. So, this story, which is common told about Japan's recent history, is quite useful for for sort of compressing a lot of Japanese history into a small amount of space and time. But for me, it doesn't describe how the impact of history feels and how those feelings, um, indeed among state administrators and bureaucrats, which is what I'm really interested in this book, sometimes explicitly voiced and sometimes not, generate cultural shifts and sometimes inspire new and even radical policy moves. So. Uh, what I was seeing in my fieldwork was that it was really the affects and feelings that were, uh, to my mind, generating a lot of these policy shifts. And I wanted to try to capture that. To do so, I thought one needed to tell a different version of that history, uh, a version of what I've called a kind of affective history of what might be pos possible for Japan's futures. So in this first chapter, I propose to, um, to write this affective history of the politically possible uh, and I'm proposing that this strategy is useful despite its very real challenges. 
um, for understanding not only how soft power operates in practice, but also for understanding why, why it and relatedly this fantasy of cool Japan, um, which we might go into a bit later, have persisted for nearly two decades now, despite actually quite a few critics um, actually pro proclaiming a lot of confusion uh, and questions over what soft power and cool Japan actually are and what they entail. Um, and a lot of these commenters have actually um, often predicted that cool Japan is about to end. Um, and yet these, this sort of set of policy measures called cool Japan seems to always come back to life. So this alternative history of soft power's possibilities in Japan um, that I'm trying to tell tries to attend to how bureaucrats, um, they're kind of affective radars. They're, they're their bodies as they are experienced as a bureaucratic body in their bureaucratic role and their even their nervous systems are kind of anxiously attuned to the nation's status relative to other nations, um, primarily the U.S., but also neighbors like China, South Korea, even India to a certain extent. So in short, I think we can use kind of the bureaucratic excitement uh, and discussion around the term soft power and cool Japan that I, I often came across in fieldwork to help explain how these anxious and sometimes abstract feelings about Japan's geopolitical status, its slipping geopolitical status in the world, are being almost therapeutically transformed into hope for Japan's national resurgence through popular culture. Um, now, this is a, a rather tricky thing to do, to try to write this history of kind of feelings, uh, to, to put it uh, in those terms. Um, but one way to do so is to kind of identify this process of affective transformation by paying attention to how, as, as you pointed to with this question, how other nation states are often described kind of like how people are described with actual feelings, emotions, and the capacity to be insulted, hurt, or, or, or proud, for example. Um, so one example I draw on to try to really communicate this is um, news coverage in 2009 when um, the, the new prime minister, Asotaro, had his first visit to the White House. Um, and so much media coverage, again, even on, on places like NHK, Japan's national broadcaster, always you know, tuned into the, the nation's mood. Um, we're really discussing um, Aso's sonzaikan, or his, his presence. And there seemed to be this really dramatic concern, as there, there often is in sort of Japan-U.S. Um, uh, relations and discussion about those relations. There was a lot of concern among broadcasters that, that in this meeting between Aso and Obama, Aso did not really make much impact. And so I show a picture in my book, which was a, a quite um, publicly circulated picture around that time, which showed um, Aso and Obama at the White House, and Aso is kind of leaning over toward Obama to... Um, kind of what, what looks like ask him a, a question or make a point. And Obama is clearly leaning away to address somebody else. Um, and this picture was, as I said, um, broadcast quite, quite widely. And I think it was, it was something like the, the first or second most popular image on, on a Google search when one put in Obama and also at that time. Um, and so this idea of state leaders, um, not only representing, but actually embodying the state, um, through their interpersonal actions is a common theme in international relations. But I think it's, it's often undervalued a bit for how much 
affective work it actually does in public spaces, especially when reproduced so often through media, which was where so much discussion on Aso's Sodenzeikon, his presence was being discussed. So leaders of states actually in, in certain key contexts perform the emotional experiences that publics feel, I, I propose, to a certain degree. Um, and um, to the degree that people identify with them, then um, people can in some ways experience the same emotions which are being depicted or performed by, by state leaders on, on the screen or in media. So in the rest of chapter one, I take up other examples of politicians and bureaucrats talking about the nations, largely of the U.S. and Japan, uh, kind of as if they were people. Um, and I'd love to share, share just kind of one uh, impressionable example yeah, from this um, that comes from this event between high-level U.S. and Japan officials um, that I attended. And in this event, a, a rather high-level U.S. official who will, who will go unnamed, like several of the people in my book, um, was describing uh, U.S.-Japan relations from his perspective. And he used a very dramatic image uh, of kind of a husband and wife to communicate this uh, sense, this relation. Um, and I have this on hand because it's quite an impressive example for me. And, and so he said uh, in this, this meeting, he said, uh, the relationship between the U.S. and Japan too often, I think, resembles a husband and wife. And to be clear here, I'm, I'm quoting. Um, Sometimes when there is instability in a relationship, one partner will ask the other, do you still care about me? Do you still need me? Uh, it's not a healthy relationship. Japan sometimes does this. I think Japan needs to stop being so concerned with what the U.S. thinks and start telling it what Japan wants, end quote. So... I use this quote in chapter one and, and draw on some other examples as well to try to capture moments of primarily Japanese officials uh, feeling surprised, uh, hurt, proud uh, in relation to often their American officials or their, their Chinese or UK counterparts, as in this case. Um, and most often, um, these moments where Japanese officials seem to feel quite anxious about the impression and the status that they are making and that indeed the state is making. And this is where those two things converge and mix, those personal feelings and those feelings of the state. Um, and I think it's precisely this, this sense of anxiety that ends up fueling and driving a strong interest in the potential for soft power as a policy to turn that anxiety into more hopeful and reassuring national sentiments, even if there's not a lot of clear ways or metrics for figuring out how that might work. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the uh, Asso Obama uh, photo, which I think is the, you know, the sort of the new MacArthur Hirohito photo uh, for, for, right. our, for our age. Yeah. That's um, right. So in, in that answer, uh, one of the things you mentioned is this sort of amorphous and, you know, undying, undead uh, zombie campaign called Cool Japan. Um, and this is very much uh, the subject of chapter two, uh, nation branding, the hyper normalization of Cool Japan. Um, so I think a lot of people are familiar, in a general sense, at least with what Cool Japan is, but it, it is not... <laughs> It's gone through a lot of transformations. Um, it's very large and sprawling. So I wonder if you could sort of uh, you know, boil it down a little bit for us to, to what is important about Cool Japan, um, and then talk about what you mean by hypernormalization. Um, and I think you know you identify a sort of irony at the core of Cool Japan as a national branding effort. And I wonder if you could uh, talk about that as well. Sure. Um, so Cool Japan is the name of 
uh, this deliberate government campaign, uh, primarily engineered by the Public Diplomacy Department in Japan's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, um, but with the help of other agencies, to explicitly connect the cultural appeal of certain popular commodities in Japan, the anime, the manga, fashion, pop music, to the appeal of Japanese culture at large. So in this way, Japan's state administrators reason um, through this uh, sort of branding efforts of Cool Japan that soft power can be practically built and managed to a certain degree by labeling as many aspects of Japanese popular culture, quote unquote, cool as possible. Um, so this idea of nation branding has been uh, most explicitly discussed by, um, um, by, for example, Simon Anholt, a, an academic and policy advisor. And it's been taken up by, by many countries the last couple of decades around the world as a strategy of governance in a period of perceived global competition where state administrators feel that they must, that they have to actually try to manage the image of the nation because the consequences of not doing so are so dire for global competition. So um, Cool Japan, um, as other scholars have, have pointed out, scholars like uh, Kuki Chu, David Lahani, uh, Yasushi Watanabe, um, Nisim Otmazkin, many others have, have documented this, this same thing that this idea of Cool Japan was first borrowed directly from the Cool Britannia campaign um, in 1990s UK um, and was also quite motivated by, by other neighbors of Japan um, also investing in its popular culture like Korea, uh, South Korea, uh, above all. And this is very much admitted by, by officials that this policy was borrowed from the UK first and foremost. Um, so there's an interesting problem, though, with nation branding. Um, which makes it a very interesting object to study ethnographically, which is that, um, and this gets at the, the second part of your question on, on hyper-normalization. Um, and the problem is, is that it doesn't really work or it, it doesn't work without also usually causing a lot of backlash, uh, which again speaks to the contested politis, politics of anxiety surrounding pop culture Japan that I'm interested in, in drawing out in this book. Um, and this is something that Simon Anholt, um, who is credited with this termination branding, regularly asserts. Uh, when governments try to control the meaning and imagery around the various cultures within their borders, it can easily come across as, as propaganda and be rejected. So this backlash can be seen in, in efforts to brand as cool, quote unquote cool, so many aspects of Japan's popular culture as possible that it becomes a kind of parody or, or irony. Um, and one nice example of this um, that I use in this chapter is from the, the TV show Cool Japan, which again aired on Japan's public broadcaster NHK. <laughs> you might, you might see, see from this interview that I'm, I'm quite a, a fan of public broadcasting in, in general. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, so in this, in this show um, that began, that ran for several years starting in 2008, um, it was, the show was kind of organized in a way in which Japanese commentators invite some foreign guests, which is a common sort of uh, setup in Japanese TV. Um, and these invited foreign guests are usually study abroad students who speak some Japanese, and they're invited on the show to discuss an aspect of Japanese culture that the foreigners on the show find, quote unquote, cool. Um, although the theme is really organized in most cases ahead of time by show producers. So um, in terms of of kind of a premise for a show, this, this works quite well for a few episodes where the show can focus on things like pop culture, 
fashion, anime, and each show takes up a, a, a single theme. So that works okay for a while. Um, but then as the show continues over the years and is maybe a victim of its own success, new commodities are sought out to brand as cool. And the task gets a little bit more difficult and resembles parody a little bit more as the seasons progress. So in the book, I have um, kind of a list of some of these example themes from the Cool Japan show, some of these examples of, of cool Japanese culture. Um, and perhaps I, I thought maybe just giving you a taste of some of them can illustrate what I mean about the challenge of branding aspects of Japanese culture as cool. Um, so uh, let's see. Um, here, are, here are some of the show themes um, which are taken up uh, as aspects of cool Japanese culture. So again, it, it starts out with themes like uh, anime and pop culture. I'm sorry, pop music. Uh, often called, called J-pop. But then it goes on to feature things like uh, stationery or shopping or uh, the season winter, which personally I'm not a huge fan of, um, so don't find it quite cool at all. Uh, examinations or the examination system, uh, childbirth, child rearing, uh, memorial or funeral services, um, anniversary parties, sweets, discipline, uh, hot pots, sightseeing, toys, uh, prayers, soy sauce, uh, <laughs> one of my favorites, shame, um, and then, of course, sleeping, which uh, arguably is quite, quite cool in Japan. Um, so for me, this is, this is a nice way to kind of understand how um, Japanese cool or cool Japan can become a kind of hyper-normalized discourse. That's why I use this term hyper-normalization because it becomes such a, a prominent and um, well-publicized and well-publicized figure that becomes kind of, a, kind of a, an irony or parody of itself. So I borrowed this term hyper-normalization from the scholars Dominic Boyer and Alexei Yurchuk who use this term to describe um, certain discursive practices, certain ways of framing an issue or a national character in very repetitive, fixed, and, and narrow ways that operate as a kind of self-parody. So in their use of the term, they're looking at certain um, forms of political satire um, in societies of both late socialism in uh, Eastern Europe in the 1970s and 80s, and then late liberalism in U.S. and Western capitalist public culture in the late 2000s. So examples like the Colbert Report or The Onion, um, which use irony as a specific sort of medium to, to do political critique. And what was char characteristic of these trends, what they had in common, was this style of discourse in which um, it was often more meaningful to participate, as they frame it, in the performative reproduction of this discourse rather than to kind of directly critique it. So I borrowed this term to describe um, the Japan case because one often found, specifically in this show, Cool Japan, Japanese commentators and critics uh, performing this cool Japan discourse in a way that could be at times sincere, but at also times be kind of ironic or even seem as, as ridicule. Um, but in either case, just talking about cool Japan reproduce and spread the discourse of cool Japan itself so widely that it didn't really matter either way, because it was essentially the publicity of Japan as cool, which was important for administrators um, who were supporting it. And this is the practical everyday way for me that pop culture Japan as a new national figure gets spread and then kind of consecrated in public consciousness. 
um, in this case, through public media. Yeah, I was very much reminded of, um, I think it's Zizek's favorite uh, uh, anecdote about the nature of ideology, which is essentially that it works even if you don't believe in it. Um, and, and, you know, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very memorable list of topics for uh, the Cool Japan show, which I think, you know, as your analysis points out, it really is just about kind of the, the, the blanket coverage of everything as cool has become, on the one hand, self-parodic, and on the other hand, it's fulfilling the, the larger mission of, of nation branding. Um, and, and I think that ties in really nicely to uh, th- what you get into in chapter three, which is obligatory nationalism. And so this is anime diplomacy characterizing obligatory nationalism. Um, and your exploration of this idea of obligatory nationalism um, as it's playing out in the foreign ministry, Japan Foundation, etc., cetera, uh, begins with the designation uh, in 2009 of the classic anime character Doraemon as a cultural ambassador for Japan, uh, which for those of you who are familiar with Doraemon is both shockingly appropriate and also strangely hilarious anyway. Um, so you observe two major differences in the way the ministry and the Japan Foundation understand what the sort of nature and practice of cultural diplomacy. Um, so it seems like that might be a good place to start um, to talk about how um, institutional membership influences the way that these government and sort of government adjacent actors view the nation um, and their role promoting it. Um, in other words, the sort of topic of the book, administrative affect, right? They're sort of feeling about their place uh, within Japan. Right. So um, this chapter indeed starts with this example of Japan's Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, kind of performing um, the nomination of Doraemon in March of 2008. And for those who don't know, Doraemon is this animated robot cat from the future uh, who's an enormously popular uh, anime and manga figure in Japan. And so the Ministry of Foreign Affairs nominated this figure, um, and the way it happened in the moment was you have this person dressed up as the anime character. And Doraemon was essentially nominated in a press conference to the post of anime ambassador. And in this act, the state, I, as, as I see it, performs a kind of uh, characterization of national Japanese culture. And here I'm borrowing a phrase from the anthropologist Shunsuke Nozawa. Um, And in doing this kind of characterization of the nation, it also in a way characterizes or caricaturizes the role of Ministry of Foreign Affairs bureaucrats um, and what that bureaucrat represents and stands for publicly. So in this chapter, I I contrast that uh, characterization of a a Ministry of Foreign Affairs bureaucrat with bureaucrats from other offices, such as the Japan Foundation, in order to try to make the very important point for me that the state is by no means a single or uniform thing, um, nor are the feelings that administrators feel toward it, uh, let alone the many members of Japan's diverse publics. Um, so this is an important point demonstrated by other anthropologists of the state as well, Anne Stoller, uh, Laura Baer, uh, Maria Rashid, um, and perhaps most, most notably Yael Navarro. Um, However, despite the, the kind of many different affective dispositions one might have toward the state and the many positions these bureaucrats bring toward the state, those feelings also get rather formalized and standardized according to the bureaucratic obligations of each state office or administration. So to try to capture the standardization process, I've used the term obligatory nationalism 
and contrasted how it works between these two state agencies where I spent a lot of my fieldwork time, um, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Japan Foundation. Uh, so in my definition, obligatory nationalism, as this analytical term I'm using, points to the process by which the way administrators feel toward the state uh, and thus shape its programs and policies is also shaped by a larger culture of obligation to colleagues and to administrative work culture in Japan in general. And so I describe obligatory nationalism in this chapter as those practices by which um, expectations, commitments, and concerns that are demanded of an individual for one's organization, um, one's work culture, are then affectively transduced, transformed into concerns for the nation at large. And this is kind of how nationalism as such within the context of bureaucratic, bureaucratic culture emerges. Um, and then feeds kind of soft power ideologies and then this emerging figure of pop culture Japan. Um, but because this, this kind of politics of popular culture in Japan is again a contested figure on, on many fronts, I wanted to try to make this contrast between different officials to see how this, this sort of works as a, di as a different process. So administrative affect then, in one meaning of the term, refers to this mode of feeling that is cultivated through activities of, of daily administrative labor and that becomes a kind of embodied ethos of bureaucratic practice. It's essentially how nationalism gets embodied as a general uh, kind of operative system that becomes effective, that becomes felt uh, in bureaucratic bodies and then is kind of becomes this automatic grounded response to, um, to one's obligations as, as a bureaucrat. Um, so, for example, um, in this first administration that I look at, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs um, and the contrast with the Japan Foundation, um, I'm trying to highlight this contrast here. So I do a kind of caricature of a Ministry of Foreign Affairs official in the same way that they kind of caricaturize Japanese culture through Doraemon. Um, so a kind of typical Ministry of Foreign Affairs official is primarily concerned with the ability for a certain policy or program to generate positive appeal for the nation state. Um, so this official's obligation is grounded primarily in a government ministry that is faced with the hard facts of global security. Um, that's what the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is concerned with. So anime diplomacy is seen as a kind of resource of soft power that can be leveraged through publicity, uh, measured both in the quantity of images circulated and in the perception of the effective qualities those images elicit and represent. Um, and this makes it seem quite natural um, to MOFA or Ministry of Foreign Affairs officials to think of programs like anime ambassadors as similar to a program like the self-defense forces training in Iraq, for example. They are both practices of national security that will build Japanese prestige and political power. So in this way, an official serves one's office and then at the same time serves the office's demands of national security and this is what is obligatory about it. This is how an official working in that organization is made to feel about the nation state in a very particular way along the lines of national security. Now, I contrast that with officials in the Japan Foundation um, who are much more concerned with um, uh, sharing and communicating um, Japanese many different forms of, of culture, popular and otherwise. And so a Japan Foundation official adopts an approach which is committed 
far less to national security in terms of defense and more in terms of human security framed in cultural terms. And culture for a typical Japan Foundation official is far more an internationally shared public good rather than a, a resource of national defense. So sharing and spreading Japanese culture is done for the purpose of education and building connections on a people-to-people -people basis. So these are two different ideas of nationalism and national culture within a single administrative body. I mean, within a, a single, um, uh, let's just, the national government at, at large. But both ideas and both figures are incorporated under the umbrella of soft power. And so by showing that difference between these two different kinds of bureaucrats, I'm trying to show how a wide variety of personal feelings one might have for the nation are channeled toward the state in different ways through the process of administration. And thus, by attempting to, quote unquote, administer the affect of overseas publics through soft power programs, officials also de develop a kind of embodied administrative affect, a kind of habitus, by which their sensitivity to the concerns of their agency and their work obligations um, are then kind of put to work for, for the state at large. And so this is kind of the work that this term obligatory nationalism is, is doing in this, in this chapter. Yeah, and then in chapter four, um, you get back to a, a theme that you've uh, already you touched on in, in the introduction, uh, in particular, um, which is the ambassadors of cute, the kawaii taishi, and the sort of um, gender politics uh, within the sort of problem of administrative affect and in the sort of the, the cool Japan uh, complex. Um, so we're moving from uh, Doraemon as anime ambassador uh, to the three ambassadors of cute. Um, and again, this is really about this, uh, as, as you described in the introduction, the mostly male bureaucrats behind cool Japan and the ways that they are uh, marketing Japan, promoting Japan through uh, these these young female uh, ambassadors as sort of products, right? That they're objectifying and commodifying them um, as the symbolic capital of Japanese soft power diplomacy. Um, and you point you, you you as you've already talked about, you sort of point out the you know there, there's there's some rejection of this. There's some uh, ridicule of this. There's some sort of mystery to the, to like, what do they think they're up to? Um, which is very much uh, the, what, what you're getting into in this chapter. Um, and I think this fits very nicely into your observation that the, uh, as you put it, anxious nationalism of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is setting the tone. Um, and that there's also that, uh, th but that that's just one part of the picture. Right. And that the government is not a single entity. And even these government adjacent agencies have their own perspectives. And um, and so can you talk about the, the ways in which the gender politics are playing out in uh, the ambassadors of CUTE and what that means for the overall uh, administration of affect? Sure. Yeah. So um, maybe just to introduce them a bit, the um, CUTE ambassadors, as they're often called in, in English, or the Kawaii Taishi, as popularly known in Japanese, are... A three young women selected by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and some advisors to that ministry to represent different fashion trends popular in Japan in the early 2000s, 2010s. Um, and they were selected by the ministry to then represent Japan at overseas cultural fairs and exhibits and, and things like this. So their official title is the, in English is the New Trend Communicators of Japanese Pop Culture. 
Um, and then in Japanese, they're commonly referred to as the, the kawaii taishi or the cute ambassadors. Um, so their mission essentially was, as, as communicated by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, was to transmit new trends of Japanese pop culture in the fields of fashion to the rest of the world and then via that to promote understanding of Japan. Um, so, for example, of, of these three ambassadors, Kimura Yu represents this Harajuku-style fashion. Harajuku is this, uh, named after this popular shopping district near, near Tokyo's Shibuya uh, area. Many people probably have seen iconic images of that, that crosswalk in, in Tokyo. Um, Aoki Misako is uh, another cute ambassador, and she represents the Lolita-style or Lolita fashion which draws its name from um, Vladimir Nabokov's novel um, by that same name. Um, although I, I should note that it's, it's sort of much less lascivious in tone than the novel might suggest um, and is, is much more kind of a conservative fashion with sort of frilly dresses and lace and long skirts and high, scholar, high collars and things like this. Um, and then the third cute ambassador, uh, Fujioka Shizuka, represents a high school girl's fashion or Joshi Kosei fashion, um, which is characterized by these, these plaid skirts and blazers and scarves typical of, of high school uniforms in Japan. And um, so these, these were the, the, the sort of three representative uh, cute ambassadors, and one might already get a sense why they might be critiqued and criticized. Um, what I find very interesting about the way these ambassador, ambassadors were um, announced in February in 2009 by representatives of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and this leads into the, the critique and criticism point, was that immediately following their introduction was a second announcement about Japan's peace and security building conflicts in Africa, namely in Sudan. So this sequence of events, and again, a very public setting, uh, for me quite clearly place these three young Japanese women in the context of um, strategizing for procuring Japanese security in terms of soft power um, that could be exercised within the nation's self-defense forces or within its popular culture, either or. Um, and that could um, approach culture as not this consumer or artistic practice, but rather as a political resource. So obviously this illustrates how Security in Japan is imagined through a very gendered lens and imagined and managed primarily through, uh, you know, the image of older male bureaucrats. So for many critics, um, for to begin with the academic critics, people like uh, Laura Miller, for example, this um, program of the cute ambassadors represents a rather narrow male centric perspective on the rich diversity of girl culture in Japan, which has its own um, rich and, and diverse cultural forms. So just like popular culture in Japan is a very rich and diverse thing, so is Japan's girl culture, um, the aesthetics and practices of young women made into a, a rather sort of narrow version. Um, in other words, like pop culture, Japan is a more narrow and male-centric political imaginary of Japanese popular culture at large. So too are the ambassadors of cute, a narrow version of girl culture at large. Um, so one can see this quite clearly in presentations of the ambassadors at overseas events, uh, such as the Japan Pop Culture Exhibit in Paris. Um, so in 2009, Kimura Yu, one of the uh, cute ambassadors, appeared on stage as Japan's cute ambassador 
um, representative in, in, that, uh, in that instance. Um, but in the presentation of Kimura, you can see quite a, a sort of heavy-handed male control of the presentation of um, cute girl imagery in Japan. So in this instance, you have this male government advisor who is joining Kimura Yu on stage and is essentially taking the lead in the presentation of the cute ambassador, um, presenting her to the audience, soliciting the audience um, for responses, asking the audience if they think she is cute, etc. And this might be seen the way this, this carries out, which you know features sort of the bureaucrat's voice much more than the cute ambassador's. The way this carries out might be seen as kind of just one dimension of kawaii or cute culture in Japan in general, where the kawaii aesthetic is seen as demure um, and not necessarily having a loud voice. But it can also be seen and read as the kind of managed performance of a new national identity or new national culture by a mainly male bureaucrat for the purpose of soft power, uh, expressed in these more narrow and scripted expressions of cute culture. Um, so the cute ambassador program, um, for me, it's rather difficult to imagine outside the, the kind of global geopolitical discourse of soft power nation branding in general, which emerged over the last two decades. Um, and for me, it also quite clearly represents a program whose content, because it's rather playful and um, ambiguous and hard to tie to the measurement of soft power effects, is grounded more directly in this, again, this anxiety keenly felt by Japan's administrators. So there was definitely a number of, of critiques and criticisms of this use of young, uh, cute women and kawaii culture to express Japan's national culture. Um, and I, there's some, some examples in this chapter of, of certain male bureaucrats um, talking about why they... Um, invested in this program and, and why they think it is in fact a good idea to, to use the imagery of young cute women to express Japanese uh, national culture. And, and perhaps I'll let the readers uh, dive into that chapter on their own for more examples of that. Sounds good. Um, and this uh, takes us to the uh, final chapter, uh, which is titled Administering Affect, Anxiety, and the Everyday. Um, and here you take your analysis uh, beyond the bureaucracy and its adjacent agencies like the foundation, uh, the Japan Foundation. And here you're arguing that um, what's, what's essentially a government-led agenda, even if it's not a fully government-set agenda. Um, so this, this agenda setting uh, that you're exploring in the previous chapters is setting the tone for distributing and circulating anxiety on a broader scale. Um, and I thought this was a really um, an interesting observation about the, 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 the effects of the affect, uh, that it is producing and reproducing anxiety. Um, so how does that work? Uh, and what are those effects of state investment in anxious nationalism, uh, specifically as it's played out through uh, pop culture Japan? Right. Um, so this is arguably the kind of most difficult chapter um, to write, certainly, um, but also the one that I'm, I'm probably the most interested in in many ways. Um, so one of the central questions I'm, I'm trying to answer in the book is um, how do the worlds that state administrators manage become the feelings that publics embody? Um, and it was clear to me over my 16 months of fieldwork that 
that these ambiguous but rather keenly felt affects of anxiety were circulating in Japan and energizing and transforming into these rather curious policy measures like the cute ambassadors. But in turn, because that anxiety was, was also keenly felt at the bureaucratic level, um, I wanted to find out to what degree and how that anxiety through top-down policies of government, again, like the cute ambassador program, affected or not the everyday publics those policies in part targeted. So in this chapter, I'm trying to show how policies of soft power and nation branding impact and refract among publics outside central government administration. Um, in some cases, people seem to adopt the, this kind of anxiety hope nexus that characterizes soft power policy. Um, and in other places, they, they're not really just embracing it and adopting it, but people seem very dismissive about the policy. Uh, and actually, many people feel, in fact, quite alienated and marginalized from these national imaginaries of pop culture Japan, um, which in inspires sometimes very harsh criticism. So I give several examples of this in the chapter um, from popular news media, from creative content producers, and then from, from education. So, for example, in the education field, we can see the creation of certain programs at universities focusing on Japan's popular culture and soft power, which use those exact words, actually, in the explanation of their programs and in the um, publicity of their programs that seek to, to um, these programs are seeking to, to both invite foreign students to Japan to study popular culture and to inspire Japanese students to invest in the culture industries as potential career possibilities. So this is, to me, a very direct inscription of, of government policy and the anxiety, hope, affective process that fuels it into education. So that's one kind of clear example of how you see an inscription process happening. Um, now, at other times, however, you see kind of a much more refractive process taking place. So um, I recall, for example, um, in this chapter one, one business executive turned artist and sculptor who was in our conversation tangibly distraught over the increasing public appearances of cool Japan um, and um, soft power imagery. So I remember in our discussion um, about these programs, he sort of asked in this rhetorical tone, but also in a very exasperated tone, is this all Japan is really about? which I thought captured um, quite nicely the kind of um, antagonistic feelings a lot of people have toward uh, Cool Japan campaigns. And then, of course, there are the more public criticisms from criticisms of Cool Japan and, and uh, soft power from famous artists like Murakami Takashi um, or the pop singer Gakt or Gakuto Oshiro, who have both called soft power and Cool Japan programming um, rather limited and, and even stupid. I think Murakami Takashi's line about Cool Japan was, um, uh, in English, too stupid to even discuss. Um, so it gives you some, some examples of the, the variety of responses to, um, to Cool Japan programming. Yeah, that's, uh, it's interesting about um, the, the Murakami, you know, who's, who's a fairly, I think, uh, controversial uh, figure in, in, in many ways. Uh, and I, I suspect there are probably people out there who feel the same way about his art. Uh, I'm, I'm not one of them, uh, but it's just, it's just sort of interesting to see the, 
um, variety of uh, sort of objections to and, and problems with uh, cool Japan. And I think some of that, you know, as, as you've sort of pointed out, has to do with that hyper-normalization as a phenomenon and the, some of the strange um, gender politics. But I think that also, you know, as you just said here, that feeling like, is this all that Japan is, is it's, it's quite profound. I actually, I, I really, uh, I really like that. And I sympathize deeply with that feeling of like, there's gotta be something more here. Um, this, this can't be all that we are. Um, and so this takes us to, uh, your conclusion, which is about the future of pop culture, Japan. And specifically it's called melancholic belonging and the future of pop culture, Japan. Um, and so you're taking up a theme that pervades the entire book, which is the synergy between storytelling and policy making, right? And so you're, it seems to me you're very interested in this problem of, of narrative um, and creating stories uh, about Japan uh, as a way to manage these various types of anxiety. Um, and you come back to that at the conclusion to talk about the possibility of melancholic belonging. Um, and you bring up here uh, Murakami Haruki um, and his work um, and the idea of low affect living in Murakami's fiction, uh, which you're suggesting is emblematic of a sort of cosmopolitan and cool uh, ethos amidst um, the precarity and hopelessness as a sort of affect um, and a highly dis- a highly circulated uh, discourse of despair. Uh, so what is this low affect living and, and what is its appeal um, in Murakami? Um, and why is it the thing that you come to here at the end? Sure. Um, yeah, thanks for this. So low affect living, I should clarify, is a, a term I borrowed from Paul Roquette's work. Um, academic of Japanese studies at MIT, um, who offers a nice, nice analysis of, of Murakami as well that I, my own analysis resonated with. Um, so perhaps I can get into this by, by um, describing how, in one way, this book functions to kind of chart uh, this affective map of the anxiety that is fueling policy around pop culture Japan, moving from the center kind of out to the periphery where you find more of the sort of marginalization, alienation and, and critiques of pop culture Japan. Um, and again, this is always, as I try to emphasize, a dynamic process. So imagery of pop culture Japan transforming this geopolitical anxiety over Japan, slipping prestige uh, in the world into hope for its regeneration through popular culture and soft power. So the early chapters of the book document administrators who are really and fully invested in this process. And then the latter chapters kind of move into terrain where people are more alienated from that process. Um, So the conclusion follows this trajectory and takes up examples of those who express or just represent for me the most sort of um, disenchanted end of that spectrum. where people are expressing, in fact, even opposition with the imagery of pop culture Japan or, or indeed um, with any government efforts to dictate the terms of Japanese culture at all. So as, as one example, the main example of this conclusion I take up, uh, as you pointed to the literature of Murakami Haruki, because um, I found in his literature and in the people who are attracted to his literature a kind of alternative way to live with anxiety and melancholy that is in some ways familiar to Japanese society at large post-1990s economic stagnation. And in Murakami's literature, um, and in other literature that resembles it, um, Murakami Ryu, for example, uh, I think we find not a need to transform that anxiety into hope, 
as is found among Japanese administrators, um, this kind of need to transform that anxiety into hope for a, a much brighter future. Um, but you find a kind of constructive resignation. Um, you find in this low affect living, in this literature of, of low affect, a kind of tool um, for, as the Japanese critic Miyadai Shinji has also said, for living well with what he calls the endless everyday, the awarinaki nichijo. Um, so one illustrative example I cite is of a group of Murakami Haruki fans that I'm speaking with, and I'm trying to get to the heart of what really attracts them to his literature. And one person, one um, um, male person in his 40s, described his attraction to Murakami's literature in a way which I thought captured this, this sense of, of melancholic appeal quite nicely. And he said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, I don't necessarily like Murakami's stories, but when I read them, I cannot help turning the page. And this is actually typical of, of how people describe Murakami's work in Japan, at least as I encountered their descriptions. Many readers find it really hard to describe Murakami's stories, um, the meaning, the significance of those stories. People often note having this kind of munashi feeling uh, at the end of reading his stories. Munashi, which means this kind of feeling of, of anticlimactic emptiness is one way to maybe describe it. Um, that people often feel at the conclusion to his novels. And they note this kind of low affect energy to his stories in general. Um, but they also seem to really kind of resonate with that mood of melancholy, which is produced in his stories. Um, they resonate with this description of a world that feels authentic to them. Um, and in this regard, there is something kind of therapeutic in reading a depiction of a world that resonates with one's own, even if it is a... Um, or if it's not really this uh, high-energy, happy-ending kind of story. So readers seem to find in Murakami's literature support and kind of tools and resources for living perfectly well without the need for a kind of uh, heroic return or, or resolution um, or, in the words of the soft power nationalism, this kind of resurgence for Japan. Um, of course, now in this chapter, I also question if this melancholic belonging might not also have its gendered dimensions, just like pop culture Japan does as a political figure. Um, because as, as many listeners might know, Mitakami's literature has often been criticized for its depiction of, of female characters. So I also, in this concluding chapter, take up some of the criticism of Murakami and, and also engage authors like um, Kawakami Mieko, um, who's author of the novel, which is translated into English as uh, Breasts and Eggs, um, who offer alternative, um, more female-centered stories of the everyday, but ones that are still melancholic to a certain degree. So again, um, offering sort of different perspectives that nonetheless share some, some concerns uh, with that, that melancholic sense of, of experience. Um, so for me, I see this, this sort of low-level affective response to the demands of everyday life in contemporary Japan as an alternative affective response to the kind of defeated anxiety of Japan's decline as perceived by bureaucrats. So in this literature and its readers, in, in Murakami's literature and its readers, I think we find... Um, people who are perfectly okay with Japan as a nation that is not seeking resurgence 
not seeking ascendancy in, in Asia like Japan might have been in, in ideologies uh, leading up to the Pacific War. Um, and in fact, for that, that very reason, many might argue that avoiding such ideas and stories of national hope and pride is a far more politically constructive approach to relating to the nation state to the extent that many people feel the pressure to reconcile with their national identities, uh, to respond to the pressure of state ideology um, and respond to the, the kind of subjects that nations uh, in various mediated forms urge us to become. And in this regard, I think there is a lesson in this book, Administering, administering Affect, uh, for all of us, or at least I, I sort of dare hope that there is a lesson in this book for, for all of us that can be expanded out from Japan, um, which is essentially that although national administrations and national ideologies always urge its citizens, urge us, we could say, to feel in ways which are in line with the state's interests, there are, I think, also ways of feeling otherwise, or as I say in this chapter, quote, feeling better, so to speak, when the nation's interests feel uncomfortable or even wrong. Um, and I think this is also something anthropology as, as a discipline um, that I'm quite committed to and ethnography as a method of it can, can in fact contribute um, quite well, um, if that doesn't sound too grand. So basically this, this documentation of the diverse resources that our many interlocutors have found for living well in an increasingly challenging world. And that's the hope that I take from my research in general and that I kind of endeavor to communicate in the conclusion to this book through the stories and storytelling of my interlocutors. Yeah, thank you. That's a really clear explanation of what I think, and certainly as a reader, um, when we got to Murakami Haruki, I thought it was um, going to be a non sequitur, right? And you've done, you know, as, as good a job here as you did in the book of explaining, like, no, why, why this actually makes sense as thinking about um, alternatives that are coming from places other than the state. And again, you know, there are uh, certainly people who are not fans of uh, Murakami Haruki in the same way that there are people who are not fans of Murakami Takashi, but, um, but, but it is uh, an interesting point that you're making about uh, the kinds of uh, storytelling that can happen uh, in these other contexts uh, and coming from places that are not the state uh, and not state adjacent. Um, and so I think it's a great place to end. Uh, but before we do so, um, I wanted to, of course, um, thank you for spending the time with us. And also, um, now that you're done with the book, uh, just ask what it is that you're up to and what we can expect from you in the near future. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for that, that opportunity. Um... So actually, for the past uh, several years, for about five years now, actually, I've been working on uh, another project with uh, colleagues in Japan, primarily my, um, my, my colleague Hirofumi Katsuno at Doshisha University in Japan. And we've been working on a somewhat similar theme to the book in terms of affect and emotion, but um, now looking at how it's administered, not by bureaucrats, but actually through... Uh, technologies of artificial emotional intelligence. And so for the past several years, we've been conducting work on um, what we are calling kind of emotion modelers, um, computer programmers, uh, robot builders, who are basically trying to take these psychological theories of, of emotion and build a machine system, for example, like a companion robot that one might live with, like, like Pepper, um, that can read human emotion 
through facial expressions or through bodily gestures and or through through one's uh, speech. And then basically through that technological apparatus, um, tell a person something about his or her emotions that that person didn't kind of realize uh, him or herself. And so we're looking at the kind of cultural impact of these emerging technologies of um, emotional intelligence and uh, working on a, uh, a co-authored book together at the moment on the last several years of that research. And um, we've written a few uh, articles on this theme as well, and all of our, um, our publications and the various descriptions of this research can actually be, um, be found on our project website. Um, if I... Yeah, I was going to say, please, please plug your pluggables. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, um, I, I was, yes, you definitely have a website. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, so that website is uh, modelemotion.org, If I'm if I'm getting that ending correct. Yeah, uh, do check it out. I, I did before the podcast and thoroughly enjoyed it. I think it's also um, a, a fascinating to sort of look at this project at the same time that everybody is thinking about ChatGPT and you know all of the uh, AI art. Uh, about a, a sort of different way of looking at um, the possibilities of machine intelligence for, for better and for worse, um, thinking about it as, a, as an affective uh, tool as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, when that book is out, uh, hopefully we'll get you back here on the podcast, uh, perhaps uh, both of you. Uh, but until then, thanks again for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.